Hello, and welcome to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, Only the End of the World Again, first published in Shadows Over Innsmouth, a collection in 1994. Uh, we all read it in Smoke and Mirrors, the collection of Neil Gaiman's short work that came out in 2001 uh, that reprints a lot of stuff from Angels and Visitations, although this story did not appear in that earlier volume. Uh, also, for those of you who are interested, there is a comic adaptation originally done by Oni Press that then was re-released by Dark Horse Comics um, of this with uh, art by P. Craig Russell, uh, Troy Nixie, and uh, Matt Hollingsworth was uh, uh, added to that as well. Yeah, someday we're going to have to do an entire episode about comic adaptations of Neil Gaiman, because I think that at this point, almost every story and every poem in Smoke and Mirrors has has an adaptation. And then I think that's true even of, of many of the stories in uh, other collections as well. But but Brent, did you say Innsmouth? Isn't that the, the H.P. Lovecraft uh, imaginary town? I thought it was imaginary, Glenn, except for then I found out that Part of your family came from there originally, I remember, in those the, the, that old book that we found. <laughs> yeah, I think you could tell because of the, uh, the Innsmouth look that, uh, that some of them have. Innsmouth is an invention of H.P. Lovecraft, and there's no way that uh, we can cover a story featuring anything specifically, explicitly Lovecraftian without bringing on my co-host from Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, where we do a lot of H.P. Lovecraft. So we're going to welcome to the show Brandon Buddha. Brandon, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I uh, enjoyed this story quite a bit. Great weird fiction story. All it made me want to do, though, was go uh, rewatch In the Mouth of Madness, that great John Carpenter film that's really a, a stealth Lovecraft uh, movie. But I really enjoyed this game and story as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I think we're going to enjoy going through this all together. This is the first time that we've ever done this, uh, you know, on Clay Temple Media, where we've had three uh, members of the the team get together and do an episode recap show like this. So that's going to be both fun and challenging. We'll see how it goes. But the reason that we are doing this, I should say, is that this episode has been commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. And uh, Brent's going to tell us a little bit more about what the heck that means. And we love our Patreon patron supporters. Supporters uh, are able to, at certain uh, level, uh, help commission specific work. They can pay us to do extra episodes like this one and also get access to some free content um, that uh, patrons are only available at certain tiers. They get to vote on upcoming uh, stories that are covered in a number of podcasts, including Elder Sign. Um, and so it's a great opportunity. It really helps us uh, support the costs for the bandwidth for the network. It also helps us sometimes prioritize what we'll do when, because um, it was great to talk about this particular work, and we probably would have gotten to it at some point, but got to it years earlier than we might have otherwise um if it wasn't for the specific uh, act of our patron to commission and say like no no guys please prioritize this one and we're happy to do that yeah, we absolutely are. And we've done a lot of commissioned episodes on the network. I mean, I think a dozen or more of them in the, the three years that we've been on the air. We've done, for example, we've done an episode on weird fiction in comics and another one, uh, weird fiction in RPGs on Elder Sign. And those were ones that, that Brandon, Brandon and I teamed up on for as well, but over on Elder Sign rather than this show. We did a, a George R.R. R. Martin story on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, and we've done some Roger Zelazny stories on uh, both Elder Sign 
Klein and the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Of course, Zelazny, Roger Zelazny, a hugely significant, hugely important uh, figure in the new wave of science fiction in the, the 1960s and, and, and on, but the 1960s and 1970s especially. And I bring that up because Roger Zelazny is hugely important to this story uh, because it turns out that among the number of things that this story is doing, including taking place in Innsmouth in H.P. Lovecraft's invention, uh, this is actually a bit of Roger Zelazny fan fiction. This is Neil Gaiman playing around with the world that Roger Zelazny has built for his novel A Night in the Lonesome October, which was the last novel that he wrote in the early 1990s before he passed away. Uh, this is a book that I read a long time ago, back when I was in the army, and just ad- adored. And I've, and I've even recorded an episode on it for uh, ATAS, our Speculative Fiction Book Club podcast, though uh, that episode's not going to come out for about another year or so. Uh, and uh, this is something we're going to be talking about as we go through. And then again, at the end, we will talk about what it is that that book is up to and what Gaiman is doing with that world. I think that's going to be a lot of fun to do. And it's kind of fanfic on fanfic too, right? Because ultimately, we also have characters here. We have Larry Talbot, the Wolfman from the 1941 Wolfman film. And we've got um, Innsmouth as a location, as you mentioned before, Glenn, um, from Shadows Over Innsmouth, which may be my favorite H.P. Lovecraft short short story. I'm not sure if it's your all's favorite. But uh, um, so he's taking a number of uh, fictional characters and places and kind of kludging them together Um so it's kind of fanfic on fanfic. Right. It's, it really is fanfic all the way down because that is what A Night in the Lonesome October is as well. It is essentially fanfic, which we will uh, we'll talk about that. We'll t- t- try to parse out all of the layers of, of fan fiction here when we, uh, when we get to the end. But are you guys ready to, to go through this story together? Yeah, let's do it. All right. It was a bad day. I woke up naked in the bed with a cramp in my stomach, feeling more or less like hell. Something about the quality of the light, stretched and metallic, like the color of a migraine, told me it was afternoon. And I'm going to say right up front, that's an amazing opening. I love this opening. It tells us nothing at all about the plot of this story, but it does completely let us know that this story is going to be hard-boiled, right? We've got a first-person narrative, a hangover to start things off, and that simile there, like the color of a migraine, that is about as Chandlerian as similes get. So... I'm hooked right here. The narrator, and we're going to get his name eventually. I mean, Brent kind of just spoiled it, but we'll get his name eventually. But for right now, we'll call him the narrator. So the narrator goes on to tell us that the room he's just woken up in is freezing. And he means literally freezing, right? There's ice on the inside of the windows here. It is wintertime. And on top of that, the sheets on the bed are ripped and clawed, and there's some animal hair nearby. Also, He always feels tired after a change, and I think you can see where this is going. He's nauseated, and when he vomits, there's a dog's paw, a tomato peel, some diced carrots and sweet corn, some lumps of half-chewed meat, and some fingers. Human fingers. A child's fingers, in fact. Now, the narrator's not happy about this. He's as surprised to find child fingers in his vomit as we are. But he doesn't really freak out about it, at least not the way that I was as a, as a reader. And instead, he just takes a long, hot shower and he gets all the dirt and all the blood off of him. And again, I have to say, what an opening. Our protagonist eats children and dogs, maybe, right? That is a bold move that Gaiman is doing here up front. But there's a clue here, uh, maybe a few clues here. But uh, what I'm getting at is that the narrator tells us that 
We are in Innsmouth. Now, we talked about this already a little bit at the top of the show, but we should probably pause here and really explain why Innsmouth has us so excited and why you know, just even saying the word Innsmouth meant that we had to summon Brandon to the show. So, Brandon, I'm going to let you give us a, uh, a quick proceed of Innsmouth for the uh, potentially uninitiated here. Well, Innsmouth is a famous town in Lovecraft stories. The most famous story with Innsmouth it- Innsmouth in it is Shadow over Innsmouth. This is a story, like I, I mentioned at the top of the show, that is heavily referenced also in uh, that, that great John Carpenter movie, In the Mouth of Madness. And it is a town full of people who worship, uh, you know, a fish god of a kind. And there are all sorts of weird culty things going on. And it stinks like fish because Lovecraft really hated fish. And there's some great (laughs) references to Lovecraft's uh, writing here. Uh, But yeah, essentially, it's one of Lovecraft's most famous creations, you know, after Arkham and Cthulhu. And it is the town where... That all the people are in a cult to raise the elder gods, the old ones who come from the deep, the ocean. Right. And of course, it's not just that they're in a cult. It actually turns out that they're all half fish people themselves. And there's something sort of weird going on with the physiology there, with the biology of how that works. But they're all the spawn of fish people and uh, are yearning to return to the ocean. And uh, and that is going to play a, a huge factor in this story as well. Uh, Gaiman is, in fact, is going to lean hard into the Innsmouth-ness of this story, uh, though there are more layers of literary illusion here still to uncover, as we talked about a little bit already. So when the narrator gets out of the shower, he finds a note from his landlady under the door. It's got the usual stuff about being quieter, not using up the fridge space. You've gotten that note before, probably. Uh, but it's also got some stuff about how all the answers are in the book of Revelations and that the elder gods are going to rise up from the ocean and sweep away all the human garbage and cleanse the world by ice and deep water. But now it's time for our narrator to get to work, and it's time for us to meet Gaiman's version of Innsmouth. And I'm just going to read this first paragraph that we we get out in the, the world here, because it's doing a great Raymond Chandler pastiche about Innsmouth that I think keeps faith with Lovecraft while also updating the town for the early 90s, really catapulting forward some 60 years ago. Lovecraft wrote his story in the, the 1920s. And it's funny. Yeah, it's got that biting Gaiman sarcasm here, that sort of social commentary. I'd been in Innsmouth for two weeks, and I disliked it. It smelled fishy. It was a claustrophobic little town. Marshland to the east, cliffs to the west, and in the center, a harbor that held a few rotting fishing boats and was not even scenic at sunset. The yuppies had come to Innsmouth in the 80s anyway, bought their picturesque fishermen's cottages overlooking the harbor. The yuppies had been gone for some years now, and the cottages by the bay were crumbling, abandoned. That's a, a beautiful description there. We're going to talk about that a little bit more when we get to the end, when we have our discussion section. But what we're really doing in this scene is going to the bar. And it's a bar called The Opener, which is a, a joke that we will get later. Uh, this is yet another layer of literary illusion that Gaiman is working with. And at the bar, he drinks two Jack Daniels, which just is not a good choice. But I think this is just that kind of bar, right? In fact, we know it's that kind of bar because he orders his Jack Daniels straight up, but the bartender gives it to him neat. So I don't think anyone should be patronizing the opener. I'll just say that right now. But what matters is that the narrator here has a strange conversation with the barman who is reading some Alfred Lord Tennyson and wants to tell the narrator several theories about how you can cure lycanthropy, uh, werewolfism. Uh, This seemingly is apropos of nothing, at least at this point, except of course, it is not apropos of nothing. We will find that out soon enough. 
So two drinks down, now it really is time for the narrator to get to work. It turns out he's also renting an office space across the street from a liquor store. And on the the door of the building, as he's going in, he sees that someone has scrawled some graffiti that says, just die. And when he sees this, the narrator thinks, like it's easy. So finally, we come to the office door where the narrator's name is emblazoned. And he doesn't stay anywhere long enough to bother with guilt on glass. So this is just handwritten on a piece of ripped cardboard that is then thumbtacked to the door. Uh, He is not the classiest of hard-boiled detectives. Uh, And here's what it says. Lawrence Talbot, adjuster. And this name should mean something to us, right? This name is another literary illusion. And uh, Brent, you are the resident expert on this one. So we'll, we'll let you fill us in on this. Who is Lawrence Talbot? So Lawrence Talbot, uh, Larry Talbot, uh, is the star of the 1941 film The Wolfman, the old Universal Monsters film. Um, it's lots of fun. Uh, rewatched it last night. Um And he is a character who, in that film, returns to an ancestral family home um, where he is now the the heir who will be taking over this estate, given that his older brother has passed away um, in an untimely way. But uh, he – when he is – taking two young ladies out uh, to have their fortune told by some gypsies who came through town, um, one of them is attacked by a wolf and he – steps in to try to save her, um, fails to do so, but he gets bitten by the wolf and it turns out that that was not actually a wolf, but, uh, a werewolf. And so then he in the film becomes a werewolf and loses control of himself, um, and, uh, is killed by the end of the film spoilers. Um, but yet comes back in many other films since then. Um, two years later, 1943 in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. The character returns in house of Frankenstein, 1944, the character returns house of Dracula in 45, the character character returns. And of course, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He is again, <laughs> reprising the role of the Wolfman. This is Lon Chaney. Um, um, playing uh, Larry Talbot and Larry Talbot is uh, notably in that, in the series of movies, he he's an aristocrat. Uh, it's not clear, other than the fact that he likes to um, tinker with things, that he has any particular profession or job. Uh, Neil Gaiman has decided for this sh- story, as well as another short story that he has written called The Beowulf, to give Larry Talbot a job. Um, and he decides to give him a job, which is not quite a detective, but instead he's an adjuster. And I don't know what the two of you make of uh, the fact that he's an adjuster other than just the cleverness of making him someone who adjusts. Well, here's the thing is that this is actually not Gaiman's idea. This is where Gaiman is writing fan fiction about someone else's fan fiction. This is this is the move that Roger Zelazny makes in A Night in the Lonesome October. And I, I guess now is a, as good a time as any to talk about what that book is. So A Night in the Lonesome October, uh, which is uh, a line actually from an Edgar Allan Poe poem that Zelazny took, is a, a, a sort of fun horror novel that Zelazny wrote that is actually basically about a, a live action role playing game. It's, it's a horror book about 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 LARPing essentially, and the the, the gimmick is this: uh, the the characters in that book are 
characters that we know from a variety of horror stories. One of them is Larry Talbot from The Wolfman. Dracula is there. Jack the Ripper, who I guess is not actually fictional, but Jack the Ripper's there. Uh, Rasputin as well, who also is not fictional. But uh, uh, Dr. Frankenstein and his monster are there. There are a number of other uh, important and and, and famous literary horror uh, figures who are taking place in this, this LARP, essentially, in this novel. And the idea is that all of these characters are either trying to bring back the elder gods, the the old ones, by opening up some kind of dimensional rift. Uh, and those people are called openers, hence the uh, the bar that we've uh, just visited here in Innsmouth is called <laughs> the opener. Uh, or they're called closers. These are the people who are trying to prevent this from happening. And so it is, uh, it is kind of a, a LARP in the sense that we have all of these characters from horror novels playing essentially a game. And it's a game that recurs. It happens about every hundred years. There's the, 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 there's a little more uh, computers. There's a little more math that goes into how frequently it happens that has to do with fall moons in October and so on. But it happens about once every hundred years. And it's usually these same players, but sometimes it's not. And uh, Larry Talbot, uh, as a uh, werewolf, is an extremely significant character in the plot of A Night in the Lonesome October. But what makes him significant is that although, yep, here he is, Larry Talbot, the wolf man, he's not actually playing the game. He is neither an opener or a closer, he is there because this is his job. This is what he does. He travels the world trying to put right what once went wrong or uh, help the helpless or, I don't know, some other catchphrase from some other science fiction show. Uh, and uh, and this is what he's what he's doing. And so this is where Gaiman has taken his cue here and where this is a bit of a fan fiction about Zelazny's fan fiction. Yeah, the idea of him being an adjuster, it, it's not like a real job. You can't be an insurance adjuster I don't think, and not work for some insurance company. I mean, who's he reporting to? I think it's just a clever job. Certainly, he gets a phone call, we'll see in a little bit, uh, that indicates that he has a reputation for solving problems uh, and is more like a fixer than an adjuster. But I think... I don't know. Maybe it's Neil Gaiman's Britishness, and there's there's a different meaning over there with a different connotation than we have here. Who knows? Yeah, and I took it as you know he wanted to make a kind of hard boiled detective, um, but to adjust is in addition to the insurance term is you know making a slight adjustment to something. And as a werewolf, he literally makes an adjustment to and from being a wolf and a man, um, as well as then. Him perhaps between the openers and closers that Glenn, you were discussing, he kind of helps set the balance between them in some ways. He slightly adjusts the cosmic scales. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, and it certainly makes sense in the context of this story. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should say that I do think that you, the use of the word adjuster here is actually Gaiman's invention. That's not what uh, Zelazny calls him. Though I, I would be interested to know if this is a kind of Britishism that uh, we three Americans are, are not getting. We have a lot of listeners in the UK, so maybe maybe one or some of them will let us know uh, sort of how they what they think of when they hear the word adjuster. Because I think right, we all uh, we all jumped to insurance claims. I think <laughs> well. Let's go ahead and go inside Talbot's office. Waiting for him in a corner armchair is an immensely fat man with stubby fingers like discolored sausages. This is a pretty standard hard-boiled detective trope. He's he's either the client or the villain or both. But Gaiman employs this trope a little bit differently here. But but still, the fat man has a monologue to deliver. It is a great one. I'm not going to read it all, but I do want to read... Well, I would love to read all of it, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to give some of the highlights. We're going to return to some of this in our discussion segment at the end as well. So here is what the fat man says. We look about in puzzlement at our world with a sense of unease and disquiet. 
We think of ourselves as scholars in arcane liturgies, single men trapped in worlds beyond our devising. The truth is far simpler. There are things in the darkness beneath us that wish us harm. And then later he says, The end of the world is a strange concept. The world is always ending, and the end is always being averted by love or foolishness or just plain old dumb luck. Ah, well, it's too late now. The elder gods have chosen their vessels. When the moon rises... And at this point, he just trails off and falls asleep. And then he wakes up suddenly and says, I dreamed I had many mouths. I dreamed every mouth was opening and closing independently. Some mouths were talking, some whispering, some eating, some waiting in silence. And then finally, he looks at Larry Talbot and asks who he is, as if he doesn't know what the heck he's doing here, doesn't remember where he even is. And all the while that this has been going on, it has seemed as if something other than the man was speaking. And near the end of this monologue, something scuttled from his collar and into the shadows of his coat. It is all very creepy. So something is not right with this uh, with this person. But he gets up, he, he leaves, and, and now it is time for some phone calls. Again, very detective story-ish here. One of the calls, horrifyingly, and this is a real horrifying part of the story, one of the calls is from the mother of the child that he ate last night. Uh, She also lets him know that the family dog is missing, too. And uh, uh, Talbot does not take this case. He says, too many bad memories. He then gets a call from a man selling aluminum siding, but who also has a warning for him. He tells him not to cross them. He says, we're ending the world. The deep ones will rise out of their ocean graves and eat the moon like a ripe plum. And that's it. End of conversation. Just hangs up there. And uh, I love all of this stuff. I, I go to hard-boiled detective fiction, which, which is really probably my favorite genre. That's the, the storytelling that I love most is hard-boiled detective stories. But I go to this genre for the mood, the setting, the dialogue. All of that has been great so far. Gaiman has really been nailing this. But there's not actually much of a plot just now. I mean, especially if you've not actually read Zelazny's book, A Night in the Lonesome October, I don't know that you would really have any idea what's actually going on here. We don't know what Talbot is trying to do. We don't know why he's trying to do it or what's at stake or even what's in his way. We don't really have even the obstacles. This is not something that I mind at all. Plot is the the least compelling part of, of any story for me. But I wonder how you were reacting to the lack of a plot at this point, Brent. I mean, I really was digging the setting and the characters, so it didn't bother me that there wasn't a plot, but I did have a lot of questions. Why was he there? I was wondering if there was going to be something clever um, about he's there, again, thinking about insurance adjustment because of trying to assess the value of something that had happened to Innsmouth um, or to see if, you know, specific liability, you know, involved some corporate interest or something else there. And um and I just was kind of confused why, yeah, why any of this was going on. I was quite enjoying it, but it, it felt a lot like I was coming into the middle of a story and I had no proper introduction, no real first act, and I didn't know where the second act was going to go. And so it, 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 it really messed with me by not giving me any expectations. But I don't know, Brandon, what were your thoughts? This is a this is an example of a story where the title's doing a lot of heavy lifting and I think it works. I mean the title's only the end of the world again. We have a werewolf, we have people talking about the apocalypse, and all of that to me indicates that this story is moving towards some sort of uh cult ritual, trying to end end the world, raise the old ones. Gaiman is capturing a lot of my interest as a reader by this kind of weird werewolf plot. Uh, this detective thing doesn't quite land for me, even though it adds to the genuine horror of the story, Glenn, as you pointed out. Uh, it's 
it's unresolved and it gives us a sense of, I guess, conflict within the character, but not the character having any real conflict in the world. Um, But all of this really works for me. I think the tone is great. I think the style is great. And like I said, the title is doing just enough heavy lifting to make me feel relaxed in the story instead of worried that I'm going to read 15 pages and nothing's going to happen. And I think a lot of it is kind of trust in Neil Gaiman, right? He's done this a lot in short stories where he does a lot of scene setting And by the end, he pulls a lot of threads together and the threads that he doesn't pull together, you're more or less kind of happy with them still dangling because it lets your mind kind of riff on the rest of, you know, how that universe might be set up or might work. Um, And so I do think you're right, Brandon, that the title does do a lot of work um, and based on the strength somewhat of the title and the way that the story is laid out so far and also knowing who the author is, we cut a lot more slack than we would if this was, you know, Brent Helt's Only the End of the World Again. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Though if 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 it was, if this was Brent Helt Only the End of the World Again and it was this uh, caliber of writing and story, I think we'd still be sold on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think absolutely. And and one of the things that Gaiman is doing, of course, is playing with these hard-boiled detective tropes. And and it is a bit of a joke when we get this this first phone call, and it's the phone call with the case, right? This is how this is supposed to work in detective stories. Sure, we get a few pages of maybe the the detective going about his day. We we've, we've learned that there is this inner conflict that he's got. He's, you know, not maybe quite down on his luck, but uh, it turns out that he transforms into a a monster that eats babies. Uh, And, you know, that's a nice inner conflict uh, (laughs) to have in your story to drive, you know, to drive your characterization uh, quite a bit. Yeah, it's certainly better than uh, having come home from the war and and the the country's moved on from you and you can't get a job and uh, all you have left is a sense of justice that nobody seems to care about. Uh, Being a werewolf is a really great way to update the hard-boiled tropes and the noir tropes that don't quite suit our world anymore, though they still make for great setting and storytelling. I, I like the idea of, of this being an update because we all know that uh, hard-boiled detective fiction grows out of this uh, this sort of angst of coming home from the First World War. But I like the, the suggestion here, Brandon, that uh, in the 90s, we were all dealing with the werewolf problem. And so I uh, <laughs> had to update it for our times. But you're, but you're absolutely right. You're spot on that that's what Gaiman is, is harnessing here. But when we get to the story beat where we, we're, we've gone to the bar already, we've seen who this person is, now it's time to get the case. And Gaiman just has him hang up the phone on the actual case. And I think it's hilarious. This was, for me, an actual literal laugh out loud moment reading this story. But I think that if you're not well versed in hard-boiled detective fiction, and if you're a Neil Gaiman reader, there's no reason that you you would be, right? That's not what Gaiman normally does. This is not everyone's favorite genre. I'm I'm the weirdo here, right? Uh, That you could could miss some of that. And I I could definitely sense, I I could definitely understand that, that some people might bounce off this story a little bit because nothing seems to really be happening and it's just not even clear what the structure of the the story is is going to be here well now that we are done with the fat man who may be the antagonist and and this is straight out of the melty's falcon by the way right uh we are now ready for yet another of these hard-boiled detective tropes the femme fatale Above the liquor store across the street is a psychic, a palm reader tarot cards that sort of thing and as talbot looks out his window he sees her and she is the most beautiful woman he's ever seen and she sees him too, and she beckons him with a finger, and he rushes across the street as if he's under a spell. Her name is Madame Ezekiel. She's got an accent. Maybe it's Russian. Maybe it's Egyptian. 
Maybe it's Maltese, right? Another great illusion there. Uh, Maddie and Ezekiel is going to do a tarot reading for Talbot, and the first card she flips over is the werewolf. Uh, it's not a real tarot card, and that's odd. Uh, she flips over another card, and this one is the deep one. Also not a real tarot card. And Madame Ezekiel thinks that Talbot is playing some kind of trick on her, that he, he's doing something to her cards, that he has done something to her cards. Uh, or, you know, at least she asks him if if he is anyway. And, and then she, she kicks him out. So we don't ever get the full tarot reading here. There are a few things I really like about this uh, Madame Ezekiel, about this Madame Ezekiel scene. One is uh, that she is also trying to give our main character Larry Talbot this idea about how to cure lycanthropy and it's also a terrible idea it's going to do him a lot of harm if he goes through with it everybody in this town seems to know he is a werewolf and we get a, a moment in this scene where there might be some visual indicators that he's not fully transformed back into a human yet though he's most of the way there um he she sees you know fur on his hands uh which is a funny reference in itself which i which i won't explain um but it's a it's a funny moment in the story and it's it and this whole scene is another example in this story where i'm really drawn into this werewolf plot and i have this lingering question of how does everybody in this town know that this guy is a werewolf why are they all offering him cures and it's just this mystery that's hovering over the story because we don't really know why at this point well and of course this speaks back to the the inner conflict that you were just talking about before brandon that that talbot himself would like to have a cure right this is what we get when he makes this comment uh seeing the graffiti just die and he thinks if only it were that easy right and and we can piece all of this together and understand that he is on a a mission for justice right he does horrible things in the world when he's in this wolf form we open with this we open with him vomiting the fingers of of a, a baby, right? Of a, a, a human, of, of a little kid. And he has to set that right somehow. And of course, he can't undo that, but he can do things in the, the world that he hopefully will, well, I guess, adjust the scales, I guess, actually. Maybe that's what adjuster is in this world, right? He's adjusting his own uh, villainy, right? That he is, that his own horrible acts that he does when he's in in wolf form and the idea of course that everyone knows that this is something that he wants they're almost taunting him with this right and of course all of these people that he's encountering so far are either the bad guys or or at least neutral right there are no good guys here except for talbot and they are all taunting him with this angst that he has well i'm glad i'm not even sure if he wants justice so much as he might want escape like because when he gets the call from the mother he 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 just doesn't take the case. You know, there, there's no resolution that he offers her. He at that point he obviously can't you know turn himself in. Oh, I guess he could, but there's no interest there. There's also no interest in giving her any kind of closure. And so I wonder if it's just uh, people keep suggesting to him, and he keeps on you know saying, well, it's if only that were that easy in terms of just die um, or standing underneath the waterfall. Um, and then, you know, suggesting that he open his veins. Um, I, it's escape that he wants, um, but he's not he's not suicidal, but it's escape that he wants. And he wants escape very much from what is his current kind of mortal condition, I think. 
Yeah, and I wondered at this point in the story with all of these people suggesting that he kill himself or die somehow, uh, he's done these terrible things that we've witnessed in the story without needing to allude to the literary reference of the, the, you know, the universal wolfman, that it makes me wonder whether he's invested in saving the world or whether the world ending would be the escape he's looking for. And I think that Gaiman is kind of playing with that conflict, that showing us that he doesn't want to die or is longing for death in some way, but a natural way that's going to rid him of this wolf form, that maybe the world ending would be his way of getting it. And I think that that is a really subtle tension in the story and the storytelling up to this point. And that is the tension in Zelazny's novel, A Night in the Lonesome October as well, where part of the gimmick actually of that book is that we, the the reader, do not know what side any of these people are on until very near the end of the book. And, and none of the characters know what side anyone else is on. They know what side they're on, but that's it. And we're never privy to that. And so we go through that entire novel, or most of it anyway, wondering who is the good guy, who is the bad guy. And Larry Talbot is wandering around as kind of a, a wild card. It becomes clear to us fairly early on that He's not really playing the game, but we do wonder what the heck he's actually doing there. And it does turn out that he is a detective. He's on a case. He is looking for a, a, a girl who who has gone missing. It turns out that the bad guys have taken her. They're going to use her in the sacrifice that, that uh, is going to open up the portal this time. But we don't know that until the end. And we get a lot of evidence that actually he might also be a bad guy. And I, that, that is something that Gaiman is riffing on here as well, that, that he's, he's picking up from Zelazny. There's one other thing I want to point out in this Madame Ezekiel scene here, which is simply uh, a bit of of linguistic fun, bit of grammar fun that Gaiman is is doing here. I mean, I, Gaiman, you know, he, he can write a sentence better than just about anyone. Uh, and he gives us this line from Madame Ezekiel. And in the eye of wolf, I see a groaning and a growling, night howls and cries. I see a monster running with blood-flecked spittle in the darkness of the borders of the town. There are two funny things going on here. One, Larry Talbot says, how can you see a growl or a cry? That's some great hard-boiled writing there. But... <laughs> But I have to say, a uh, groaning and a uh, growling, this is a brilliant use of the gerund, the, the verbal noun uh, form in, in English that is one of, that is my favorite grammar form. It's my favorite word form. Uh, you know, if people, for people who have favorite parts of speech, gerund is mine. And I just loved seeing them here. Also with the alliteration there, I thought this was a standout line for me that I just wanted to pause on because, well, that's what this show is for. But meanwhile, now that he's been kicked out of Madame Ezekiel's, Talbot can see that two men are looking around in his office and then settling down to wait for him. So he decides to just let them wait and he goes back to the bar, which is a sensible plan if ever there was one. The place is deserted except for the barman who tells Talbot that the customers who were here earlier are are gone now. They've gone off to wake the deep ones. And he says, the stars and the planets and the moon are all in the right places. It's time. The dry lands will sink and the seas shall rise. And the barman knows where they're going to be doing this. It's atop the cliffs to the east. Now, of course, Talbot wants to get up there and stop them, right? That's what he's doing in town. And the barman offers to take him up there personally, since no one's going to be visiting the bar tonight. And they head off. And this is the end of the second act. And, and we're going to get to the action climax next. But before we do that, we need to talk about the barman's book of Tennyson poetry. In this scene, Talbot picks it up and he reads a little from it. And, and then again, as they set off up the cliffs at the, the beginning of act three, the barman is actually reciting some of it. And we're definitely going to 
to want to have these passages to to talk about. But uh, Brandon is our resident poetry dude, so he's going to do the actual reading to to save me the embarrassment of not understanding the meter of this poem. And then he's going to tell us a little bit about this poem that the lines come from. So uh, go for it, Brandon. Yeah, this poem is the the Kraken by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Uh, it's an early poem, but I'll just start by reading it because we kind of get it without comment in the story. Uh, this is the poem. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the kraken sleepeth. Faintest sunlight flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell unnumbered and enormous polypi, winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages, and will lie, battening upon huge sea worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then, once by man and angels to be seen, in roaring he shall rise, and on the surface die. Uh, This last bit, and on the surface die, is unspoken by the barman, uh, though it is thought by Talbot, who has, you know, read the poem, he's picked it up and and read this one. Uh, This is is a poem that Tennyson wrote when he was about 21, or it was published when he was about 21 in 1830. Tennyson, of course, is one of the great, you know, and perhaps best known uh, poets of the Victorian era. This, you know, being so early really shows a lot of Tennyson's general interests in, you know, mythology and folklore and uh, British history, or at least the heroic history of England. Now he's best known probably for his poems like Ulysses and Idols of the King, really also Charge of the Light Brigade. But, um, (laughs) you know, if you have time in a kettle of tea, if we're going to talk about Tennyson here and I have a moment to uh, stand on my soapbox, you should really read In Memoriam A-A-A-H-H. This is a poem that uh, he took years to write. It is a memorial to his close friend, Arthur Henry Hallam, who died uh, tragically when they were both in their early 30s. Hallam was also engaged to Tennyson's sister, so this was a real blow to the whole family. But In Memoriam uh, took 17 years to write. It is an astonishingly beautiful and consistent poem. Uh, It's beautiful in its breadth and its depth, but it's long, so you'll need a pot of tea. I just wanted to get that out there. I love In Memoriam AHH. I was really pleased to see uh, Tennyson in here. Kraken is a fun poem. Uh, You know, the Kraken is a giant octopus or squid that lives under the sea. And it's clearly uh, in in the context of this story uh, meant to represent what the townspeople are trying to raise. But we have this great unspoken ending, like I said, and on the surface die, where if where now we have the hope of the story, Talbot's hope expressed in this unspoken bit of poetry that even if they are successful in raising the deep one, the old one, Talbot might still be able to kill it once it's in corporeal form on the surface. 
Right. And the the idea of that here in this poem as well is something that we see in Lovecraft's most famous story, right? The, the Call of Cthulhu. And, and scholars have done a lot of work looking at the parallels between uh, the plot of the Call of Cthulhu and the idea of Cthulhu in that story, and even some of the lines in that story. That is something we'll take up when whenever we actually get around to doing the Call of Cthulhu over on Elderside, which is I don't know, something we're saving up for a special occasion over there. But we've not actually done the Shadow over Innsmouth yet either, which we're also saving for a special occasion. But the the parallels are are but the parallels between the two stories are are clear. It's real obvious that Lovecraft himself loved this poem and and drew on it. Gaiman is aware of that, and so it's sort of circular to be putting it back in here in Innsmouth, which is you know the seat of the Dagon cult, the seat of the the worshiping of the fish god, where people are going to turn into fish people. So all of this is just layers and layers, levels and levels of fan fiction. And even though what we are dealing with here is a scary story, right? It's a horror story and is a truly horrific story as well that again opens with the protagonist of the story vomiting up baby fingers. It's a really funny story as well. Gaiman is doing a lot of joking around here. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're an English major nerd, I guess, like like we are. <laughs> but all right, let's get to the action climax here. Let's do act three. It is a clear night and the stars are visible. But the moon isn't up yet. Atop the cliff are two figures, the fat man and the psychic, Madame Ezekiel. They're here to end the world, to, to, to bring the deep ones up. And the barman is totally with them, too. I think we all saw this coming, right? Uh, the barman says, This night the moon is the moon of the deep ones. This night are the stars configured in the shapes and patterns of the dark old times. This night, if we call them, they will come. If our sacrifice is worthy, if our cries are heard... And of course, Talbot is the sacrifice that he's talking about here. Well, now the moon is up, and it looks strange. It looks amber. But Talbot isn't changing. He's not supposed to. He changed last night, and it seems that, you know, in this speculative world, he only changes one night per lunar cycle. I think often it's three when we, uh, we get this in other speculative fiction universes. But still, this strange moon is affecting him. Uh, he can see better in the dark, for one. And down below in the bay, there are frog people splashing, and he can hear the drowned whispers of the dead in the bay and the creak of green wrecks far beneath the ocean. A beautiful line from Gaiman there. And all throughout this story, as we've said, people have been telling Talbot their theories about how to kill a werewolf. And now, Madame Ezekiel says that really, the best way to do it is to just wait until they're in human form an entire month from another change, and then you kill them. And she means with this sacrificial knife, for example. And uh, she slits his throat, he bleeds, but then the bleeding slows, and then the bleeding stops, because Talbot has wolfed out, and now he's invulnerable. He leaps at Madame Ezekiel, and then the description trails off in ellipses, and we get this italicized description of something else that goes on for like a whole page here. Talbot is deep in the darkness under the sea, and Madame Ezekiel is there, but now she is seven feet high. There is flesh on her skeletal bones, but it is pitted and gnawed, and she's covered in weeds. I have to say, this is probably the weirdest part of the story. I mean, in the weird fiction sense of it. But Gaiman still gives us a, a great Chandlerian simile right in the middle of this. He writes, She had a face like the stuff you don't want to eat in a sushi counter. All suckers and spines and drifting anemone fronds. And somewhere in all that, I knew she was smiling. And, and then Talbot leaps at her. He closes his wolf jaws on her face. And ellipses again. We're back in block font. We're out of the italics. And then Talbot lands in the snow with one of Madame Ezekiel's scarves in his wolf mouth. The rest of her clothes are on the ground. So is the silver knife. But Madame Ezekiel herself is nowhere to be seen. 
the barman is furious about this and he picks up the knife and he runs at Talbot with it. But Talbot just steps aside and lets him run right over the cliff. So it's over now. The frog people take the barman's body. They all disappear beneath the surface. The fat man is still there, though, atop the cliff, and he kindly explains that Madame Ezekiel was an avatar of the Deep Ones, an Eidolon, a manifestation sent to bring about the end of the world. But Talbot's disrupted the whole thing, which is a shame, because it was such a perfect night to bring back his old friends from underneath. But at this point, Talbot isn't really listening, because he is totally wolfed out, and he can hear the deer in the woods nearby. And so we end with a brief coda. It's the next morning, and Talbot awakes in the snow next to a half-eaten deer. His throat is cut and scabbed. A hawk swoops over him and drops a small gray squid near him. An omen, he decides, though he's not sure if it's a good one or a bad one. In either case, he turns his back to the sea and to the shadowy town of Innsmouth and walks off. And that's the end. Uh, We're going to have a brief discussion in just a minute, but uh, I'd like to just check in with both of you first about your response to this story. Were you satisfied with this this ending? Did you you enjoy this story? I think I enjoyed it, but it's hard in the way that all fanfic can be hard in that given how much I enjoy the Wolfman, I, I enjoy somewhat, but Shadows of Rinsmith is a story that I like so much that if you're using its bones for your story, your story has to be really, really, really good. Otherwise it's just like, eh, okay, that's fun. And I, I wasn't disappointed in the story, but I also found the ending not as satisfying as I had hoped I might. However, I did really enjoy that after all was said and done, the fat man was just like, nope, we need three of us to do the thing. I'm not going to hurt you at all. Um, And that I kind of found funny as well as just kind of great almost epilogue to the story. I mean, it's not actually the epilogue because we have the the hawk. Um, Although I also was a little – um, confused as to what was going on with, you know, the bird, whether we're talking about it as a metaphor or something else, it kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't really see anything, um, earlier in it. And I don't know if there was something that I had missed there, um, or if there was some other reference maybe to, to Tennyson or something else that, um, perhaps Brandon or, or Glenn, you picked up on. Yeah. I didn't see too much there other, other than, kind of a clever way to end the story of course the squid and the kraken or and the giant octopus i mean all those sorts of sea creatures inspire you know fear of the deep in many people and i think uh this is just a kind of way to put uh maybe a trite sort of pin in the story and say it was a big deal but now it's being represented as something pretty small the world's going to try to end itself again. It's going to be avoided again. Uh, but as for this instance, with all the horror of the the giant kraken rising from the sea, this is what it amounts to. You know, a squid washed up on the beach and a hawk drops it in front of the wolf. Uh, really kind of a small thing, maybe. I, I, I'm not sure. I really did enjoy this story. I'm not as, f- as familiar with the source materials as you are, Brent. Um, so I kind of read it I kind of just read it as a piece of fun fiction, you know, a werewolf solving crimes in Innsmouth, which I am familiar with. But the theme is the theme of the story, I guess, is about the aversion of the end of the world, uh, how it's always averted. This is something that comes up in you know Buffy the Vampire Slayer a lot. That it just becomes a job, um, and and I like how if Lauren if it is Lawrence Talbot's job to 
make sure the end of the world is averted and he travels around a lot doing this uh that this is just another day on the job for him except the the danger is a little more present for himself and it gives us a sense of you know a whole corpus of stories that could exist with him doing this and sometimes he's you know in the middle of it and sometimes he's on the fringes of it uh, of the end of the world i mean so yeah i enjoyed it i think so at the end of the day i did enjoy it it was a fun read i read it you know two or three times um but i don't think it's neil gaiman's best story it's still fun though well, you guys have collectively raised every single topic that I want to get to in detail in the discussion. So let's just move into that right now. To start off some of the discussion, I, I was struck a little bit with the extent to which Lawrence Talbot has agency. It, what decisions is he affirmatively making that we can see? Because um, obviously when the wolf takes over, you know, when the story starts, he is in bed and he's done terrible things. Those all happen off screen before it starts. Also, he seems to have no memory of the specific action. So we don't know why he's in town. Um, he does appear to make the decision to leap at Madame, uh, Madame Ezekiel at the end. But is that the only agency he really has? Because otherwise he just kind of feels like he's casting about waiting for the next thing to happen. But I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of his level of agency as a character and how it relates to the plot. Right. The thing that he does really do avert the end of the world is step aside and let someone run off a cliff, which is, is comical, I suppose, but it is not, uh, does not betray a lot of agency, as you say, Brent. And maybe this raises the question for me looking at the story the other way, right? Because if Larry Talbot is uh, indispensable for the, cult's plan here to to raise the the deep ones to bring about the end of the world right they need a sacrificial victim and larry talbot is someone who's just breezed into town he's a chivalric hero as all hard-boiled detectives are he's just breezed into town to solve the problems and, and save the world what were they going to do if he hadn't shown up right uh and and this is something that is different from the way that zelazny in d does this in his novel where Talbot is actually rescuing the sacrificial victim there. And I suppose it is fun and funny for Gaiman to kind of flip that on its head and make Talbot himself the the victim. But it does seem a little bit strange then to not have someone else have to rescue him because maybe the cultist plan doesn't really stand up to a whole lot of scrutiny. And and that's in part and, and, and that's maybe part of why Talbot doesn't seem to actually have a, a whole lot of agency. His presence doesn't really seem to maybe matter all that much. This is the this is the Raiders of the Lost Ark problem, right? You have <laughs> exactly. a, you have a character who's constantly taking actions of their own volition, but none of it really matters to the plot all that much. And I think Gaiman is doing a, a great job of uh, giving us a character who is taking action in the world, but doesn't need to act in in a way that affects the plot. And this is kind of a a hard-boiled trope, I think, on some levels, where you have like an A plot, a B plot, sometimes a C plot, and the detective is really more of the witness to it and gets caught up in the middle of it but and does stuff to solve the case, but it's more at the whim of the forces of, you know, the conspirators or the how the A plot and B plot are going to work together or their own vices more than they are taking action to solve uh, mystery, though it does get solved. And I think Gaiman is playing with that a little bit. But this is a this is a problem in a lot of 
in a lot of action movies, you know, to what extent does what the hero does actually change the outcome of the plot that needs to be resolved? And really, the hero is often there as a cipher, as a witness, as a way to bring the audience in. Though I think Neil Gaiman also subverts that by giving us, uh, you know, a cipher who is doing something or is demonstrated to have done something so repulsive that it's hard for us to root for him or even relate to him. So I think there are some merits here. But yeah, he's definitely a passive hero, though he does certainly walk around a lot and pick up the phone. You're certainly right, Brandon, to point to the, the parallels with Indiana Jones here. And Indiana Jones is a hard-boiled detective, by the way, for, for people who aren't clear on that. And and this is, as you say, Brandon, this is a feature of hard-boiled stories, right? The idea is that none of us really can have a whole lot of agency in the world. There's a, there's a bit of fatalism in, in hard-boiled stories. This is growing out of uh, the, the world ending basically, with the the First World War. We talked about that a little bit earlier. But I think even this is just the theme of the story, right? We can go back to the the fat man's monologue or, or the monologue of the creature who is possessing the fat man uh, in the, the scene in Talbot's office, where he says the end of the world is a, a strange concept. The, the world is always ending, and the end is always being averted by love or foolishness or just plain old dumb luck. And it is really foolishness and just plain old dumb luck that saves the day here in this story and also in Raiders of the Lost Ark and many other such stories because not only does Talbot not necessarily have a whole lot of agency, I mean, he doesn't have a plan, right? We're never in his head where he's thinking, okay, uh, I have figured out what's going on in this town. I breezed in yesterday. I figured out what's going on. Uh, I know that the cultists need these three things to to uh, carry out their plan. So if I can get one of those things, then they can't do it. Or I know that um, one of the people who's indispensable to this plan can only be killed with a certain type of weapon. So let me go find that type of weapon that's, you know, I don't know, going to require finding a cave and fighting a dragon or something, you know, and then then I can save the world. None of that is happening here because this is not that kind of world. This is not a chivalric world. This is a hard boiled world. So it's foolishness and just plain old dumb luck. And there's something I want to talk about in response to Brent's overall assessment uh, of the story. In fact, there, there are several things I want to do. But Brent, you expressed some dissatisfaction in really kind of maybe the anticlimax of the the ending here, where well, we can't go through with the ritual, so I guess we'll just you know walk away from this together, even though we were on different sides of this fight. That is straight out of Zelazny's book, A Night in the Lonesome October, which ends with uh, two people, the, the the last two remaining people, one opener and one closer. Uh, Larry Talbot actually shows up and makes it impossible for the uh, openers to to win. There's some other stuff going on there too, actually. But in the end, they all just shrug. The closers who've lost just shrug. And the the two of them, the opener and the closer, walk down the hill together and they're going to go get a drink. And actually, we're even meant to understand that while all of this has been going on, the buildup to the climax, those two people have actually built a real relationship and maybe are about to start a romance together, even though they've been on opposite sides of the question of, should we destroy the world or not? And so that's, I think, what Gaiman is doing here. But what I'm really getting at here, what I want to do is really look hard at the Zelazny stuff here in Only the End of the World again. I talked a little bit about the the gimmick of A Night in the Lonesome October, but I'll, I'll repeat it here just so we can all be on the same page, which is that everybody in that book is someone from another book or a movie or from uh, the 19th century, a 19th century historical person that you have read about, someone famous that you know, Dracula, Jack the Ripper, uh, so on. And and I have to think that Gaiman is doing something similar here. We certainly have Larry Talbot, but I couldn't figure out who the barman, the fat man, and Madame Ezekiel maybe were supposed to be if they are, in fact, 
supposed to be people that Gaiman is taking from other famous books or famous movies. And I wondered if you guys had any thoughts about this. Uh, and Madame Ezekiel in particular jumps out to me. And then the barman as well, who is described as having this fox-like hair, that has to be an epithet from that, that applies to someone famous from some book that I just don't know what it is. Do, I, do either of you guys have any ideas about this? I certainly don't. Uh, I read these as kind of more just tropes that that Gaiman is playing with. I didn't know. I, I yeah. I didn't get the sense that he was doing um, more layers of pastiche here with you know these unnamed characters. Though maybe though maybe he is. I, I as you were describing a night in the lonesome of to- October again. I don't want to get us too off track here, but. <laughs> That plot is almost exactly the plot of a movie that came out in 1987 called The Monster Squad. I just wanted to throw that out there. (laughs) All of these things are part of this sort of weird cultural milieu that seems to be taking place in the, you know, in a five-year period from like 87 to 95. Everybody's bringing back the universal monsters or uh, doing these pastiches in some way. But yeah, I just, I I wanted to say that, but I I didn't get the sense that they were any more than... um, you know, tropes and not part of the pastiche of the story. And one of the things I've neglected to say about A Night in the Lonesome October is that that although I've been describing it as, hey, Dracula's there, hey, Sherlock Holmes is there, Jack the Ripper's there, that is true. They are never called those things. And part of the gimmick, part of the fun is that we have to figure out who these people are. And some of them are pretty easy to figure out, but some of them are, are a little more difficult. And, and some of the game is that Zelazny couldn't actually name some of these characters because of copyright. And so then he leaned pretty hard into not naming any of them and just made that a feature of the story, made that a gimmick, made that a game for readers. So I I really did feel like Gaiman was doing that here. I do think that the fat man is the famous fat man from the Maltese Falcon. That I will say. But uh, I, and I st- but the barman and Madame Ezekiel, I really do think they've got to be from somewhere. Brent, do you have any ideas about this? You know, I, I don't. And I kind of landed where Brandon did, in which I think they're kind of collections of tropes. We've seen both of these, um, you know, kind of the fat man antagonist mobster, you know, we've seen him, obviously the Maltese Falcon, as you said, but in many other work, I feel like he's kind of what you've seen. Um, and then Madame Ezekiel as the fortune teller feels again, like kind of a noir kind of trope, but also, as you mentioned, there's a kind of a femme fatale to her, but it's layered with, um, the fact that gypsies play a big role in a lot of these universal monster movies in the original Wolfman. Um, it is Bela Lugosi playing a gypsy who is actually the Wolfman uh, werewolf who actually bites Larry Talbot to begin with. Um, and it's the gypsies coming to town that kind of causes the problems, but also the gypsies then get out of town as soon as they know there's a werewolf, which is kind of funny to me. Cause it's like, but there was a werewolf traveling with you the whole time, but it's, <laughs> and you know, in 1941, you know, there's also maybe unfortunately some layers about distrust of the other and distrust of kind of immigrants going on when we talk about gypsies, which I think is there whenever you talk about gypsies altogether and the discussion of even whether or not that's a terminology that should be used. But, um, I kind of viewed them more as a collection of tropes and I didn't, I think I did briefly try to figure out, like, are they someone that I'm supposed to think of? But there wasn't enough other identifiers to give me that. Um, I, I did want to bring up, though, with the with the fat man, there was the mention that there was something that, you know, between him changing voices where he clearly is speaking with the knowledgeable voice um, and then something. Oh, yeah. Um, so it mentions that he's talking and then. Um, 
Uh, a thin trickle of drool came from one corner of his mouth, oozed down in a thread of silver to his collar. Something scuttled from his collar into the shadow of his coat. And then that seems to be when he kind of changes to a different person. And, and I kind of took that as there was something kind of controlling him, almost like a puppet. Um, and when I read the story, I thought of it as kind of a, a – because the scuttering I thought in terms of like a cockroach or something um, because I hate – bugs it's it's a it's a big i know controversial thing for me to say that i don't like cockroaches i know there's a lot of the pro cockroach cockroach, people are going to be upset but uh, i don't care for them but so that's where my mind went in terms of the way it was described i will note though that the um the comic book adaptation instead of a cockroach it's a tentacle that kind of slithers up from his jacket and that had been under his collar which i think kind of fits with the motif of, you know, someone trying to rise, um, kind of the sea god, but I didn't know what, what did either of you, did either of you have in your head what it was perhaps, or what it maybe looked like that was doing this kind of puppeteering? Well, I definitely assumed it was going to be some kind of aquatic thing and and got the impression of tentacles, even without Gaiman necessarily using that word, because I I think we want to be on motif when we're, when we're doing something like this and that he's possessed by something here, right? I think puppet is the, is the right way to think about this, Brad. That's a a great, a great phrase there, a great word for this, a great description for this. And, but whatever it is, right, that, that is actually controlling the, the fat man, using him as kind of a, a terrestrial meat suit, right, so that he can actually you know, talk to, to other uh, terrestrial creatures, uh, we don't really see clearly enough. Though, uh, I wonder, going back to the question of, hey, what's up with this hawk dropping the squid thing at the end? Is the squid thing he drops the thing that was possessing the fat man? I, I don't think so. I mean, that's just not the sense that I got. It, it, to me... The thing, you know, scuttering under the coat, the silver line of drool, uh, there's talk of like silver bullets. I I just, I had a really different sense that it was something more mechanical, like, you know, um, like a gun dropped from his pocket into his coat or something like that uh, while he's passed out. But like reading this story a little more closely, he, he talks about the the old ones, the deep ones have chosen their vessels and it seems like it's him, the barman, and uh, Madame Ezekiel who are the vessels. But the fat man seems to be a vessel in a different way than the other two, in that he is okay. It in that the fact that he's okay with averting the end of the world means that this person is just going to return this being, return to whatever plane of existence they came from and wait to possess somebody else in the next hundred years. And it's, it's not really any skin off their nose. So I got the sense that he was not super invested in bringing about the end of the world. And uh, it was just the fat man as a vessel for the consciousness that's inhabiting or the consciousnesses that are inhabiting this guy, you know, that dream of having many mouths, some are talking, some are eating. Um, it seems like maybe there's a collection of entities there. So I, I like your guys reading a lot better, but I think there's, uh, there's still multiple things that are possessing this guy, the fat man, and he's the vessel. I don't think the squid at the end is representative of the, the thing that's possessing him because there's just not the imagery there in the story explicit enough for me to draw that conclusion. 
And as I mentioned, I wasn't sure exactly what kind of the hawk squid thing had to do with anything. Um, where I kind of landed with it um, was the squid is just some generic squid. It's not necessarily related to anything, but it was about how when we think about particularly in kind of Lovecraftian stories and, and other kind of weird fiction, sometimes when we think about the ocean as, you know, it's, it's a dangerous place where we can't see all of these unknown creatures that are still not in our time fully knowing what goes on at the deepest depths. And there's a lot of mysterious things that sometimes wash ashore. Um, and so you're kind of safest and most in reality, the farthest you get from the ocean. And so the, the, the octopus that that's dropped, I mean, it, an octopus on land is, not something to worry about, um, even if it hadn't been crushed by a hawk. Um, but an octopus, if you're in the water, is really dangerous. And so that's what, you know, setting it at Innsmouth or any kind of fishing town on the edge of the ocean, um, it's kind of on the cusp between the known and the unknown and where things are kind of bleeding together, where you've got this mingling of people that you know and frog creatures you don't. And so I kind of <laughs> took it to be that. Something that we do here on Hanging Out with the Dream King is talk about the title of the piece. I think we've actually done that already a number of times, so we don't have to have a dedicated spot for that here in the discussion segment. But we should still talk about some of our favorite parts of the story. When we're doing comics, we always pick out a favorite panel. But since we are doing prose here, we're going to pick out some favorite passages. Brandon's your show. Brandon's the guest. So, of course, the polite thing to do would be to allow him to go first. But that's not how we do things here. So, uh, Brandon, you get to go first because it's your show. What's your favorite passage from this story? There's a bunch of really good ones I like. And and I do want to say, um, you know, despite my sounding a little down in terms of the story as a whole, um, the fact that Neil Gaiman's prose is so wonderful to read and there's there's so many great lines, it does rise it so that it's a story that I very much do enjoy, even if it's not one of his best. But um, one of the things I really liked was near the very end of the story, um, it's the description of the transformation. And I think part of the reason why I uh, really like this, not only the, the language which I'll read, but it's also that you know, in watching werewolf things, I mean, that's where I'm literally usually just watching them. I, I'm often not reading them in fiction. Um, and so I'm seeing them in, whether it be the 1941 Wolfman film or whether it be something that's more current, you know, American werewolf in, in Paris and American werewolf in London. Um, it, it's the transformation scene, which a lot of effort increasingly goes into over time, making that fantastical and taking full use of the visual medium of film. Um, but you don't know what the person then is feeling, except for occasionally when they're screaming, you know that there's some amount of pain associated with it usually, but you don't, you don't know what's kind of in their head. And so I think that's the reason why I really enjoyed this uh, bit, which is the description. So let me read it. The pounding in the front of my head, the pressure in the back, all a roiling change, a how, wow, row, now change, a, a red wall coming toward me from the night. I tasted stars dissolved in brine, fizzy and distant and salt. My fingers prickled with pins and my skin was lashed with tongues of flame. My eyes were topaz. I could taste the night. And I just, I, I just love that. It's very evocative of kind of what he's maybe feeling. There's a lot of things. There's also a lot of questions I have in there when he mentions the, the brine fizzy and distant and salt. I actually then 
thought, well, is there something akin to what he as a werewolf has experienced that is linked to, again, this ocean, you know, deep one kind of thing where I'm thinking about brine and salt. And then I love the description, how it ends in terms of I could taste the night. And that's a great phrase, but also it gets back, as Glenn mentioned earlier, to one of those like, how do you taste the night? <laughs> yeah, there's some great language in this in this description as well. I mean, this this bit, this this how wow row now bit. It's just nonsense sounds, but it does capture so well. I mean, not that I know what it feels like to transform into a wolf. Just trying to protect myself here. Didn't want to out myself accidentally, right? But it does it does cover it. It does it does show us the sort of indescribable nature of this just by doing this sort of nonsense sound. I mean, this this is a great sentence. This is Gaiman really deploying all of the linguistic powers that he has here. I mean, this is a brilliant choice, Brent. It was certainly on, on my list to to pick as well. I thought it was great. I You're right to point out how, you know, an American werewolf in London and an American werewolf in Paris really shifted... The viewer or, I don't know, anybody who has any expectations about meeting werewolves and, and film are on the page to this visual and graphic transformation. But I loved how Gaiman here just focuses on the sensory experiences and the sensory changes that are happening. We don't get a lot of visual anything in this story other than... Uh, like neon on snow, only things that remind us of, you know, blood or gore in some way that even maybe the fox red hair of the barman is something like that of decrepitness of decay. Uh, we only get visual descriptions of really kind of grotesque or negative things. These sensory descriptions are awesome. I, I really liked this passage as well. Well, what was your favorite passage, Brandon? Well, I, I can't really tell you why this passage of mine was the favorite uh, that I chose. It could be the tone. Uh, maybe it's this kind of mixed sense of grandeur and the and the quotidian. Maybe I just think it's a funny way to do exposition. But my favorite passage is when the narrator describes his landlady's letter to us. I also think it's kind of a, a good bit of, of writing as well. This is what Larry Talbot says. This is how he describes the letter to us. There was a note under the door from my landlady. It said that I owed her for two weeks' rent. It said that all the answers were in the book of Revelations. It said that I made a lot of noise coming home in the early hours of the morning, and she'd thank me to be quieter in the future. It said that when the elder gods rose up from the ocean, all the scum of the earth, all the non-believers, all the human garbage and wastrels and deadbeats would be swept away, and the world would be cleansed by ice and deep water. It said that she felt she ought to remind me that she had assigned me a shelf on the refrigerator when I arrived, and she'd thank me if in the future I'd keep to it. I just think it's hilarious. I think it's a great, great bit of writing. Yeah, it's really – it's great. It's evocative. It's funny. Um, and it really helps, I think, the story that that text appears so early in it because it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm in good hands. This is – this is Neil Gaiman being clever, being funny, um, and also describing something that all seems kind of normal, but very much is not. And it's it, it's really a great passage. And one of the things that Gaiman does extraordinarily well that maybe we don't talk about quite enough on the show is to to mix in the the seriousness of his stories, like the high stakes of his stories, with 
the mundanity of daily life, right? And so he's he's blending here in this note the the creepiness, right? This is the most Innsmouth thing that is going on in the story here, right? As the shadow over Innsmouth, it, which is my favorite of the the Lovecraft big novellas. It might not be my absolute favorite of all of his stories, but it's certainly my favorite of the really big novellas. What I love about the shadow over Innsmouth is the the slow creeping build up to the revelation that uh, something is rotten in the town of Innsmouth, and that you. you you, have, you need to get out, right? That the narrator, the protagonist needs to get out. And that this starts with him being in a hotel, the, the Gilman Hotel, and slowly coming to realize that something isn't right. And that's the cue that Gaiman is taking here. And so we get that here for the first time, and it's great. But mixed in with this is this very serious complaint about how noisy he is and also how much space he's taking up in the refrigerator. And there's no sense that the end of the world that's coming, like literally tonight, that the landlady clearly knows about really maybe overshadows, maybe kind of erases this bit about the taking up too much space in the fridge. But no, it doesn't. That's equally important to her. And that's hilarious, right? This is this brilliant thing that Gaiman does so often. Well, this bit about the refrigerator, uh, we we keep on talking about it in terms as in terms as if he's taken up too much space in the refrigerator. But the line is she assigned me a, se- a shelf in the refrigerator when I arrived, and she'd thank me if in the future I'd keep to it. And this is followed by a line about how many like food cartons and empty like stuff and like empty pizza boxes, but also like there's pizza in some of them. And he he also isn't keeping his food in the refrigerator, and so it has this great ambiguity uh, uh, as a meaning as well <laughs> that I think works great in this story and kind of adds to the comedy. Uh, of the kind of high and low stakes mixed together. And then also we get the visual and then the prosaic ambiguities of what this letter even means. Yeah. And I also imagine that he was occasionally eating stuff off of her shelves. Um, And perhaps when he's not quite himself, or perhaps that's just the excuse he was using, where in the middle of the night, he's hungry and he wants food. And it's just like, well, she's got this leftover Chinese food. She, She won't notice if I eat some of it. Right, exactly. It's just such a great line. So, Glenn, what was your favorite passage? Well, my favorite passage is one that I've already read and that we've talked about a lot, and it, it's the monologue from the Fat Man. This is and this is taken almost beat for beat straight out of the Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett, which is one of my favorite books of all time. It's also a, a book that just has a lot of personal meaning for me. It's something that uh, uh, my wife Elizabeth and I listened to on our very first road trip together uh, in our first few months of dating. This is a book that we gave out to guests at our, our wedding as a, a wedding favor. So I'm always going to pick something from the Maltese Falcon if it shows up as an illusion in uh, in, in somebody's story. But I do also think it was an absolutely brilliant bit of, of, of speech writing, of, of monologue writing there and really spoke to the theme. So I won't read it again. I do want to say one more thing before we close out there, which is just that thinking about this letter from the landlady, Brandon, also brought to mind that, you know, Joss Whedon, of course, is someone who also makes this move uh, and and doing so in the 1990s, this mashup of horror and comedy, the putting together the, the the mashing together something that's terrifying and something that's mundane and and playing it both for seriousness and for laughs at the same time this was something that i think was just in the air in the 1990s but i will say and this is something i do talk about on the uh ATAS episode about a night in the lonesome october that i will air in a, a year from now uh, that uh i'm pretty sure that joss whedon borrowed the um uh, 
a story arc of the character Spike in the second season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the character arc of Dracula in A Night in the Lonesome October. Uh, there's, a, there's a speech that they both give that is basically the same speech, but uh, you can find out more about that in a year from now on ATAS. So what I like about the Fat Man speech is he, in, in a lot of ways, kind of captures the plot of so many pulp novels in which he's talking about how, you know, the world is uneasy, that we're uneasy and disquiet and that it's simple, small things that sometimes, you know, end up fixing the problem at the end of the day. And it could be any number of, of things, whether it's luck, whether it's, um, you know, love or something else. And that's just, it's a, here is an encapsulation of all of the things you could do for writing a pulp story. Like now <laughs> fill in with pronouns or proper nouns and places, uh, these actions to have a full plot. Yeah, we were kind of down on the worldview of this when we were talking about it. I mean, you, you started us off, Brent, with this question of, hey, does Larry Talbot actually do anything in this story, <laughs> right? In what way is he a protagonist, let alone is he a, a, a hero? And that is a real motif of hard-boiled stories. And and But we were looking at it really from the perspective, or at least taking the tone anyway without really interrogating it, of, but we were looking for a hero. We were looking for someone to actively save the world. And it is true that there is a bit of, of fatalism, maybe even nihilism about the way that this is done in hard-boiled stories of saying that, well, you can't really save the world. The world is always going to keep going. But there is also some kind of optimism about that and saying that it doesn't really take a hero. It doesn't take heroic action to save the world. It just takes all of us trying to do our best and maybe trying to make amends for the terrible things that we do from time to time. And if we do that through through love, foolishness, or just dumb luck, the world will keep going on, that we don't need a hero to to do this for us. And so, I, I you know, I think it does swing both ways uh, for the writers of hardboiled fiction, but also I think for Gaiman here in this uh, in this story. And well, I think uh, I think coming back around to the thing that opened up the discussion is a, a good note to conclude the discussion and conclude this episode on. Before we go, I do want to make sure that we thank our Patreon supporter who commissioned this episode. I'm really glad that we read this story. Also really glad that this gave us an opportunity for all three of us to get together again. It's been a while since we've uh, we've done that, and we only do it when we are commissioned to do it. I wish we were able to do it more frequently than we do. And this is the first commissioned episode we've had on Hanging Out with the Dream King. So, uh, I don't know, that feels like a pretty big milestone to me, and I'm really grateful for that. But on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, including the podcast that I co-host, Elder Sign and the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, at claytemplemedia.com. And I'm Brent Heltz. Um, you should go ahead and visit the forum. Tell us what you think of the story. Uh, is there a specific character or characters that uh, the Fat Man and Madame Ezekiel are kind of allusions to? Or are there additional tropes that we miss that are kind of layered into either them or and what's going on with the hawk? Just share your thoughts, claytemplemedia.com. Also, if you'd like to commission an episode, uh, we would be happy to have your support. You can check out the information on that at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia and uh, find more information about how you can um, perhaps commission a full episode or at the very least vote on which topics we cover in the future. 
Right. And speaking of, next time, we're going to be back with the Babylon 5 episode, Day of the Dead. This is an episode that Gaiman wrote. That's why we're doing it on this show. Uh, That is from season five of the TV show Babylon 5. And this was chosen by our Patreon supporters in one of the bi-monthly votes that we do to decide what we cover on most of our our other shows. And I threw this on the the list here thinking that it couldn't possibly win, but it was something I really wanted to do. In fact, I, I mentioned it in our very first episode, our introductory episode. But surprisingly, it actually won by a landslide. And so I'm very excited to revisit this. But until then, pleasant dreams.